before we dive in, there's something I want us to see right away in verse 1. Okay, this is, what, this is how we know that Paul is holding up a mirror, okay? In verse 1 of chapter 2, do you notice the shift of pronouns that Paul uses here? See, in the previous passage, Paul writes how God delivered them over, that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, that they are filled with unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. He is talking about those people, plural, out there. And then we get to chapter 2, and Paul says this, Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself. And what's so interesting, and I think very important to see, is that this pronoun, you and yourself, that Paul uses in chapter 2, it is not plural. He's, he's not addressing y'all, like a group of people. He's addressing a person, an individual. And I think it serves us well to read that, read this passage with this in mind. See, the way we engage and listen to others, it depends greatly on the context. I, I guarantee that many of you this morning listen differently to me when I preach or teach versus when we sit down one-on-one with a cup of coffee. That's just how it is, right? I, if we're sitting down one-on-one with a cup of coffee, most of you are not going to lean over to someone next to you and ask, what, what's for lunch? Right? You're not going to engage in some separate conversation because you know that one-on-one, the words coming out of my mouth and the words coming out of your mouth, they are meant for us only and not anyone outside. Paul is wanting his readers to engage with him in Romans 2 like this. And so I think this is how we need to engage in Romans 2. In a sense, Paul's moves from addressing the masses to addressing the individual in front of him. So in our minds this morning, as we look at Romans 2, just you and Paul, sitting down at a table, cup of coffee in hand. I'm sure that's what they did back in those those days, right? But just you and Paul to hear what he has to say. And as Paul sits down across the table from his reader, the first thing Paul does is he holds up a mirror to reveal and condemn three things. And the second thing Paul does is he holds up a window into the future. So if you're taking notes with us, the first part of the passage is going, we're going to look at the mirror. That's going to form, this is going to form our outline this morning. We're looking at the mirror. And then verses 6 through 11, we're going to look at the window. That's going to help us organize our text here. And so first, taking a look at the mirror, I think Paul's aim in holding up this mirror, it is to reveal three significant faults in his reader. And the first fault that Paul is revealing is the fault of hypocrisy. Verse 1, therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. Okay, remember who Paul is addressing here. It's, it's this self-identified believer, likely a Jew. He, he's not addressing the heathen, he's, he's addressing the non-heathen, or the more godly individual. But just as the heathen is without excuse, like we read in chapter 1, he's, they're without excuse because God made himself known through what has been made, the one who considers himself righteous is also without excuse because they do the very, thing, very things that they judge the heathen for. 
Okay, this is what Paul's argument is. And so how does this translate to us today? See, what I think we can do is move from the text into our context today in two different categories. We've got two types of people in the world. There are Christians who belong to the covenant community of God's people through faith in the true gospel. And then there are non-Christians who at this point in time do not belong to the covenant community of God's people. These are the two categories of people in the world. And so the first category that helps us move into this context is involving these two groups of people, the believer and the unbeliever. And so in this category, here's a question. As a believer, do you or do you not have grounds to judge unbelievers? As a believer, do you or do you not have grounds to judge unbelievers? If you've been paying attention to the news lately, you have no doubt been a witness to the capacity for evil in the human race. The atrocities began one week ago yesterday. A terrorist organization known as Hamas launched a surprise attack on Israeli citizens, capturing and brutally murdering men and women and children in the pre-dawn hours of the morning. Israel has since been pursuing the complete eradication of Hamas, with many Palestinian citizens caught up in the violence. What we have seen in the Middle East this week is a display of pure and untethered evil. Here's the question. As a Christian, do we or do we not have grounds to judge the men carrying out this evil? I'm not asking whether or not they deserve judgment. They do. Right? This is the thrust of verse 2, where Paul says that God's judgment is based on truth. This also translated, God's judgment rightly falls on them. Okay, So we can and we should point the finger at evil and call it evil, whether the evil comes in the form of a lie or a cold-blooded mass murder. We should loudly and boldly and unashamedly call out evil and expose it and denounce it. But that's not what I'm asking. What I'm asking is, do we have grounds to point the finger at evil, expose it, and denounce it with a heart that says, I am better than you. I would never do what you just did. And the answer is no. We have no grounds. And there are two reasons that are spelled out for us in Romans 2. And the first reason that we have no grounds to judge the unbeliever, regardless of the display of evil, is that our capacity for evil is the same. Romans 2, 1, when you judge another, you condemn yourself since you, the judge, do the same things. See, what we need to understand is that when we point the finger at evil out there, regardless of the degree, the regardless of the degree to which it has been unleashed, and we fail to point the finger at evil within, regardless of the degree to which it has been restrained, we are nothing more than hypocrites. 
This is what Paul is trying to communicate in chapter 2, verse 1. Some of you middle and high school students, you, you might have studied the concept of potential and kinetic energy in your science classes recently. If not, here's a, a very insufficient preview for free, okay? I want you to imagine a balloon. Okay, you, you blow that balloon up as much as you can with air, and then you hold on to the end. See, all of that air trapped inside the balloon, it gives the balloon what's called potential energy. Because as soon as you let go, the balloon then has kinetic energy as it flies around like an oversized latex housefly until it runs out of air. I, I think our hearts can be compared to a balloon that's full of air. And that air inside, is, it's all the bad stuff that's stored up in there, right? Greed and lust and hate and pride. And some people's balloon hearts, they are, they're just constantly releasing evil air. And so, so the wickedness of their heart is evident. Other people's balloon hearts, they've been knotted real good and tight. Everything just stays inside. The condition of their heart is less evident, but the condition is the same. The potential for evil is the same. And I think Paul emphasizes this back in chapter 1. In verse 29, what does he say? They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. What Paul's describing is what is on the inside of the human heart. And you read that list, does it strike anyone else that murder and gossip are in the very same list? Or that murder and greed are in the very same list? See, when we judge, again, judge meaning we point the finger at evil and expose it and denounce it with a heart that says, I'm better than you, then we are hypocrites. And the reason is because our capacity for evil is the same. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a huge difference between a believer and an unbeliever. Right? A Christian has been given a new heart. The old self has been crucified. They've been raised to new life. But if you are a Christian, it's not like that happened because of you. It's not like your heart at one point was a little less evil, so you were a little more worthy of being saved. See, without, without Christ, our heart is just as prone to evil, and so we have no grounds to judge. And when we do judge, we are hypocrites. Have you ever caught yourself in a hypocritical moment? A couple weeks ago, I was what you might call in a state. I had just sent my kids to their rooms to get dressed so we could just get on with the day. A minute or so went by, and uh, I could hear some noises that I would just describe as inconsistent with uh, noises that sounded like getting dressed. Okay, So in, in my state, I, I just bounced up the stairs. I, I went into the room, and I saw one of my kids sitting on the floor who was very clearly getting dressed, but I was kind of in a state, so I just looked at her and I said, what are you doing? And it was in a tone that was very impatient and disrespectful. You know what she didn't say back to me? She didn't say, oh, well, Father, 
as you can see, I am getting dressed just like you asked. And the reason I'm doing that is because I have a desire within my heart to obey you in everything you say. She looked at me and in the exact same impatient and disrespectful tone I had started the conversation with. She said, I'm getting dressed. Which makes sense. That should have been enough for me to bite my tongue and just do a little heart check. But because I was in a state, all I felt was the disrespect from her towards me. And so what came out of my mouth was this. Do not speak to me like that. I was completely blind to my own disrespect towards her. But as I spoke those words, it was like God held up a mirror and I could see my own hypocrisy. Romans 2, 1, when you judge another, you condemn yourself since you, the judge, do the same things. You know, that was obvious hypocrisy in my mind. Much of the time, however, our hypocritical judgment, it's not so evident. It doesn't come out in audible words or actions. Instead, it just stays hidden within our inner dialogue within ourselves. And this leads to the second category of my question. Okay? So the first category, again, does a believer have grounds to judge an unbeliever? Okay, but here's the second category. And Paul brings us to this category in Romans 14, so we'll get there in a few months. But here's my question. If a Christian does not have grounds to point to even the most evil unbeliever and say, I am better than you, how much more are we to avoid hypocritical judgmentalism towards one another in the church? How much more are we to avoid hypocritical judgmentalism towards one another in our homes? See, this is the second category that we want to look at this morning. Turn with me to Luke chapter 6, starting in verses, verse 41. We'll be in 41 and 42. Verse 41, Jesus is speaking, he says, Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but no, don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the splinter that is in your eye, when you yourself don't see the beam of wood in your eye? Hypocrite, first take the beam of wood out of your eye, then you will see clearly to take out the splinter in your brother's eye. First thing I want you to do is I want you to see yourself in this passage as the one who sees the speck of sawdust in someone else's eye, okay? So just kind of put yourself into the passage here, which, which means yes, right? Right now, in your mind, I want you to assume the role of the one who Jesus is calling a hypocrite, okay? What about your actions is making you a hypocrite here? Is it because you see a speck of dust in someone's eye? Is that what makes you the hypocrite? Is it because you have a desire to take it out? You see it, you're like, oh, that looks painful. Let me help you. Let me take that out. Does that make you a hypocrite? No. No, it's because you saw the speck of sawdust, but you did not see the log in your own eye. Okay, this is what hypocrisy is. You, you fail to first examine yourself. And do, do you know what I've observed in the church 
over the last many years. And what I've observed in my own heart over the last many years. There's a lot of looking. There's a lot of looking at specks of sawdust. We make mental notes of specks of sawdust. We might subtly allude to specks of sawdust to other people. But we notice them. We pay attention to them. And what, what are those specks of sawdust in other people's eyes? What, what do they look like? In other words, what do you tend to notice about people? Do you, do you notice their decisions in parenting? What do you notice about how they choose to use their time or resources? Or what do you notice about their career choices? Or the clothes that they wear? Or, or the people they choose to spend time with? What do you notice about their eating habits? Or the cleanliness of their homes? What do you notice about the car they drive? Or the way they communicate? Or, or the teams they serve on in the church? Or their convictions around social media or alcohol or video games? What, what do you notice about people? What are the little specks of dust you just see in people's lives? Because in many cases, here's what happens. We notice little things. right? We, we pick up on little things. But that's not where it stops. What happens then is we form judgments in our mind that go beyond the speck to the motive and heart behind the speck. You follow me? We can notice a speck in someone's eye, whatever it is, and what goes into our minds is, oh, well, that person doesn't care about the church. Or, oh, well, that person doesn't care about the lost. Well, that, that person doesn't care about the poor, or that person doesn't care about children, or that person doesn't care about mental health, or that person doesn't care about me. And we form these judgments about the cares of people's hearts from observing little specks of dust from a distance, as though the cares of your heart are perfectly balanced, and what this person needs to do is just be more like All of this, it's taking place at the level of our thoughts and attitudes. See, we observe a speck of sawdust, and then we use that to, to quote Pastor Tim, we, we use that to fill in the gaps of our relationships, don't we? It almost never comes out in words. And, and when it does, it almost never comes out towards the person who you think has a big bad speck of sawdust in their eye. Notice what Jesus says. He doesn't say, you hypocrite, stop noticing the specks of sawdust in your brother's eye. He says, you hypocrite. First, first, take the plank out of your own eye. Take the log out of your own eye. First, look within yourself. Because you know what you would find if you held up the mirror to yourself, is you would see the same wrong cares, the same wrong motives, the same wrong affections, the very same things that you are judging others for. And they might not be externally visible all the time, but they are there. 
And so as someone who notices a speck of sawdust in someone else's eye, what do you do? What do you do with that? Jesus, he doesn't say, oh, we'll just leave it there. Just ignore it. No, he just says, first deal with yourself. Get the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of another person's eye. And when we can see clearly, we'll be able to see what that person actually needs. And in most cases, when you're able to take a log out of your own eye, what you're going to see is that what that person needs more than your finger in their eye is encouragement. Do you know that? You're going to see that they need a friend. Don't we all need someone to build us up and to remind us of the incredible love that Christ has for us? They're they're going to need someone to demonstrate genuine care and compassion. They're going to need someone to assume the best of them. They don't need someone to nitpick. Now what I want you to do is I want you to see yourself in this passage as someone with a speck of dust in their eye. There's something going on. And another brother or sister, your husband or your wife, your pastor, your community group leader, someone comes to you in love and humility with a correction. Wouldn't it be ironic to accuse them of the same wrong motives and judgmentalism? Wouldn't that response in and of itself also be hypocritical judgment? To assume their motives? To assume the cares of their heart? It would be. And so what do we do in that situation? Again, we assume the best. We receive their correction. and We trust that they are doing their best to be a good friend and to point us to life and godliness. See, we, we have got to believe And we have got to live like we are for one another as a church. We are for one another as a church. We are not to judge one another as though we are against one another or as though we are better than the next person in the church. This is not to say there's not a time for correction, for calling one another to repentance, or even that there's not a time for something like church discipline. But but the heart posture behind even the smallest correction all the way to the removal of someone in the church must be genuine love and humility with a deep understanding that your heart is just as capable of the sin and wickedness of the one that you are correcting. Romans 2.1, for when you judge another, you condemn yourself. This is the first reason we have no grounds to judge. The second reason we have no grounds to judge is that God is the ultimate and righteous judge. Do you know it's not even your judgment that matters? Look at verse 2 and 3. We, we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is, is based on the truth. Do you think any one of you who judges those who does such things yet do the same, that you will es- escape God's judgment? This is, we're dealing with God's judgment. Everyone in the world will stand before God's judgment. Not yours. And you know today, as we speak, 
God has not yet poured out his judgment. It's not to say there's not consequences for sin in this life, but final judgment has not yet occurred. And in Romans, we see that, uh, that Paul's audience despised this reality. See, they looked at the sins and wickedness of the world around them, and they cried out for justice, for God to condemn the world, for God to condemn the wicked, to pour out his justice and wrath on sinners. But what they didn't realize is that his delayed judgment, the fact that it has not yet come yet, that was his grace and mercy towards them. So this is the second fault that Paul reveals by holding up this mirror in this passage. He reveals their hypocrisy, but then he reveals their blindness. See, they were completely blind to God's kindness towards them. Verse 4 says, Do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? You know, if you're here and alive today, do you you know that the only reason, the only reason that you are sitting in these chairs, that you are breathing air right now, is because of God's kindness and patience and restraint? If you are a Christian, it means that at one point in your life, you were not a Christian. When you were born, you were born into a sin nature. And as you grew, so did your sin. You were far from God. You were cut off from hope with God. And you were deserving of his judgment and wrath. And at some point, whether or not you know the day or hour, at some point, God saved you. You were dead in your trespasses. God made you alive in Christ. You were in darkness. God brought you into his marvelous light. You were in your sin and under God's wrath. And God removed your sin and placed it on Christ. He poured out his wrath on Christ, even though it is your sin. This is God's kindness. You know, God would have been fully justified to strike us all dead and cast us into hell for all of eternity from the moment we had one inkling of a sinful thought, let alone a deed. But he didn't. Instead, his kindness and his restraint and his patience led us to faith and repentance. And if you are not a Christian, meaning you have not trusted Christ and Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, what that means is you are still in your sin. It means that you are currently dead in your trespasses and you are currently cut off from life with God. And you are in spiritual darkness. You currently sit under the wrath of God. You are in the very same place that every human being in the history of the world has been at one point in their lives. But God has not yet poured out his judgment on you. He has given you an opportunity to recognize his kindness and his restraint and his patience, to repent of your sin and to trust Christ. And Paul is very clear of the fruit of unrepentance. And this is the third thing he reveals in his mirror. The fault. It is unrepentance. He says, because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. See, what Paul is trying to get his readers to see 
is that their judgmentalism towards those who they think are deserving of God's wrath is the very thing that deserves God's wrath. And so what Paul wants his readers to repent of first and foremost is of their self-righteous judgmental attitudes towards others. I think if there is something that we are to repent of from this passage, it is our own self-righteous judgmental attitudes towards others. But, but what does repentance look like? What, what does it mean to repent? It doesn't, doesn't mean just stop. That's not what repentance means. It, it means to change course, to go the opposite direction. So to repent from a judgmental attitude does not mean you just stop being judgmental. It means to adopt a much different attitude. A lot of people would tell you the opposite of judgment would be tolerance or affirmation or acceptance. I don't agree with that. I think the opposite of judgmentalism, it is compassion. It's compassion. See, a heart of judgment just looks at someone and says, you deserve judgment. A heart of compassion looks at someone and says, wow, we both deserve judgment, but there is forgiveness in Christ. See, this is the intended outcome of Paul's mirror. It's that each of us would not simply point the finger outside of ourselves, but we would point the finger within. It's that each of us would recognize that we deserve judgment for our sin, and we would be moved to faith, repentance, and compassion. This is the mirror that Paul holds up in hopes that we would look within. And after he does that, he holds up what we might consider to be a window. Okay, verse 6 gets us into a window into the future as it relates to God's judgment. Verse 6 says, He will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, for there is no favoritism with God. So what is God's judgment here? Well, his judgment is that each person receives what his work deserves. That is God's judgment. A lot of you know I used to be a public school teacher in Des Moines Public Schools. And if you're unfamiliar with how teachers get paid, it is fascinating. Okay? It really is. Your salary depends entirely on the number of years you have served plus the level of education you have received. Okay? Your pay has absolutely nothing to do with your effectiveness as a teacher. And if anyone wants to help me understand why that's a good thing, I welcome that. Okay? I could never understand it, but that's beside the point. My point here is that Teachers in Des Moines Public Schools could fall into one of like 50 different categories of pay based on whatever combination of experience and education they had. Do you know how many categories of pay exist with God? Two. Two categories. And it's not based on your years of experience or your level of education. What is it based on? 
verse 6. It is based on your works. It says, those who persist in doing good receive eternal life. Those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth receive wrath. And you might be thinking, whoa, hold on. (laughs) This sounds like heresy. This is anti-gospel. Are you saying my salvation depends on my works? No, I am not. I am saying God's judgment depends on your works. God's judgment depends on your works. What I'm saying is that Paul is setting himself up to make a point here. And the point is this. There are exactly zero people that fall into the category of persistent doing good. And the number of people that fall into the category of disobey the truth, it is the same number as the population of the world. This means that no one deserves eternal life. No one has done the work to remove God's judgment from them. Everyone deserves eternal judgment in hell. And when Paul writes that there will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, he's not saying that there will be some temporary physical ailment or some natural disaster that comes on sinners. He is speaking to the eternal affliction and distress that is hell. For those who die apart from Christ, hell will be their conscious lived reality for all of eternity. This means that your neighbor, who's the best neighbor anyone could ask for, who fixes your lawnmower and rolls up your garbage cans and invites you to the Labor Day barbecue, that neighbor, apart from Christ, will face an eternity in hell. It means your family members, who you love, who you text often, who you play cards with on the holidays, that family member, apart from Christ, if they do not know Christ, will face an eternity in hell. It means that your barber or your barista, your chiropractor, your teacher, your classmates, your soccer coach, apart from Christ, if they do not know Christ, they will face an eternity in hell. It means that men and women all over the world who are striving every single day of their lives to do good and to promote peace and order in the world apart from Christ will face an eternity in hell. It means that you and I, outside of Christ, apart from Christ, would face an eternity in hell. All of humanity is united in condemnation. Do you see now why we have no grounds to judge? A couple of weeks ago, just as we wrap things up here this morning, I was on a run. And I was just working through this passage in my mind. And I was struck afresh with the realization that I love many people. By, who, by societal standards are, are good people. But they do not know Christ. And therefore they will be in hell forever unless they repent and turn to Christ. And I had this thought. If God's judgment 
is good and righteous. Why do I hate this reality? Why do I want to avoid talking about it and thinking about it? If it is good, if it is right, why do I want to just put it out of my mind and never think once about the eternal consequences of sin? See, I have far less discomfort thinking about the eternal damnation of terrorists who go on a murder rampage and kill four-year-olds. But my neighbors, my family, is, is hell really what they deserve? Is it really what I deserve? Could a good and loving God really send someone like me to hell? Do you know there is only one way we can come to understand the answer to that question? There's only one way. We behold the holiness of God. God is holy. He is set apart in every way. He is completely righteous, altogether good, unthinkably pure. There is not one impure motive in him. His holiness is beyond our ability to grasp. It is God's perfect holiness, not the comparative goodness or badness of others that will put our sin into perspective. When we gaze at God's holiness and then we look at our own hearts within a mirror, the contrast, it could not be greater. We would understand that sin and righteousness cannot dwell together. And then we would look ahead through this window that Paul is holding up and we would see God's righteous judgment, that it is eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory and honor and immortality and wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. We would look into that window and we would know without a doubt what camp we belong to. And the question would no longer be, how could a good, loving God send someone like me to hell? The question would be, how could a holy and just God freely forgive someone like me? And he did. God is holy and just. He does not overlook sin. He does not forget it. He requires payment for sin because if he did not, he would not be just. But the payment for sin was paid by Christ. And Jesus, the perfect son of God, the one who knew no sin, he took our sin. He became sin. And in exchange, he has given us his righteousness. The debt of our sin has been paid. If you are in Christ, you are no longer in sin. You are no longer under the wrath of God because you have the righteousness of Christ. God's justice has been satisfied in Christ. This is his kindness towards us, intended to draw us to repentance. We must behold the holiness of God. As we close our service this morning with the Lord's Supper and worship, we have an opportunity to do just that, to reflect on the holiness of God and to remember that we who were once far away have been brought 
back into relationship with God by the blood of Christ. And Jesus commanded his church to remember and proclaim his death together through the Lord's Supper. It is a reminder for us that we are united and knit together as a body of Christ in the gospel. And therefore there is no room for prideful judgment towards one another. If you're a baptized believer, we invite you to partake in the Lord's Supper this morning. If you're not yet a believer or you have not been baptized as a believer, please know the Lord's Supper is not for you this morning. We ask that you'd refrain from taking the elements and instead use this time to consider how a holy, just God has indeed offered you forgiveness and eternal life through faith in Christ. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace. God, help us to see the depth of our sin. Help us to see, God, how far we, f- we fall short from your standard. God, we praise you that you have rescued us and you re- have redeemed us, God. The perfect Son of God, Jesus, took on our sin on the cross so that we could be set free. God, stir our hearts towards this truth this morning. As we partake in the supper together this morning, remind us, God, Remind us of what you have done for us. And pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.